Let us now read what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 48, page 556 of your Book of Praise. There we find God's word summarized as follows. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come, that is, so rule us by your word and spirit, that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 46, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, also you, boys and girls, as you know, Canada is known as the Dominion of Canada, not as the Kingdom of Canada. Essentially, however, there is no difference between these two words. That is also clear from the psalm that we sang a moment ago, Psalm 145, stanza 4. Your kingdom will from age to age extend. Of your dominion there will be no end. They are synonyms. They are used interchangeably, therefore. In deference to the United States, the founding fathers in 1867 preferred the word dominion. Because Canada is a kingdom, that means it is ruled by a queen or a king. Right now, it is Queen Elizabeth II. Even though she lives in England, nevertheless, she is the head of our government. She abdicates that responsibility of governing to others. And she does that through various representatives, such as the governor's general, and also through members of her family. The queen and her representatives are very visible. Not so long ago, we had a visit from Prince William and his wife, Kate Middleton. I think everyone will agree that they were quite a hit. The majority of people were quite enamored by them. They were very pleased to have them among us. Because of their visit, the monarchy received somewhat of a boost in Canada. Among the majority of the people, there is now a greater love for the queen and her house. They want to maintain that age-old tradition in connection with the crown of England. In order to strengthen that connection, the adjective royal has been reintroduced to some of the military institutions of Canada. The monarchy is considered something worthy to fight for. It represents freedom and strength and prosperity. Now, not everybody thinks so, but that is generally the way people in Canada think, the majority of them. And you would think that as we speak about the kingdom of God, that then there will be that same kind of zeal and love. However, as you know, that is not the case. Many people do not even think about the kingdom of God. They don't, they don't even know what it is. They don't know much about it. 
when we speak about the dominion of Canada, then we do know something about what we are talking. Then we know where the boundaries are and who the government is. We know what the kingdom of Canada represents in the world. We know many things about it. But when you speak about the kingdom of God, there is a lot of ignorance. What exactly does it refer to? We have many problems with the concept of the kingdom of God. It is somewhat nebulous. That is, it is a somewhat unclear concept for us. Why is that? In the first place, the monarch of that kingdom of God is invisible. God dwells in heaven. We are on earth. The Lord God, of course, has his representatives here on earth, such as the ministers and the elders, and indeed all believers. But they are spread out all over the world, and they represent someone who cannot be seen directly or heard. And so we also have problems about the boundaries of God's kingdom. Where exactly is God's kingdom located? From the perfect prayer that the Lord Jesus teaches us, it is clear that the concept of God's kingdom is very important. For the word kingdom is mentioned twice even in this very short prayer. He mentions the kingdom of God throughout his ministry on earth as well. Many of his parables relate to the concept of the kingdom of God. And so the Lord Jesus time and again draws our attention to this. Therefore he wants he also wants us to pray in the second petition, your kingdom come. In other words, he wants us to pray for the furtherance of his kingdom, for the growth of his kingdom. He wants that kingdom to grow in this world and in our hearts so that we can see it and so that we can experience it, so that we can learn all about it and so that we can be excited about it and promote it. I will preach to you about the growth of God's kingdom. And then we will see that God's kingdom comes from, goes from, in the first place, small to great, and in the second place, from great to perfect. The Jews expected a very quick establishment of a powerful kingdom. They were looking for some kind of savior who would deliver them from the hands of the Romans and who would establish the nation of Israel as the most important one in the whole world. That is what they thought would happen, for that is how they interpreted the prophecies. However, the Lord Jesus teaches, first of all, that God's kingdom is not a kingdom with physical boundaries, such as the kingdoms of the world. No, it is a spiritual kingdom. That is quite clear from verse 28 of Luke 13, where he speaks about those who live in the kingdom of God, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets. Those people died long ago. They now live with their Father in heaven. And it is not a kingdom that is established overnight. That kingdom God's kingdom is established over time, and it goes from small to great. That is why he compares God's kingdom to a mustard seed. 
A mustard seed is very small, yet it produces a very large tree in which the birds of the air can perch in its branches. God's spiritual kingdom, although it has its seat in heaven, is also established on earth. And look at how small the church was at the time of the Lord Jesus. Oh, sure, there were believers at that time, people belonging already to God's kingdom, but they were few and far in between. By and large, God's covenant people of old had rejected God's rule. And then the Lord Jesus comes along. He started off with 12 disciples. Others also became followers of the Lord Jesus, but the number of followers of disciples fluctuated. There were many followers who later rejected him again for various reasons. After the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the number was still small. Some 120 men and women in Jerusalem. Negligible. But then on the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 were added. And from that moment on, the numbers increased and increased. The gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ of the king as the king of kings finds its re- finds receptive hearts all over the world of that day the word spreads it spreads through judea samaria damascus in cities and villages in asia minor that is turkey and greece and in europe today there are some 2 billion christians all over the world that mustard seed that the Lord Jesus was speaking about grew into a large tree with branches that covered the whole world. It is wonderful to see that kind of growth. But when the Lord Jesus speaks about the growth of his kingdom, does he then refer to numerical growth? Is it all about numbers? We would be inclined to think so. After all, Doesn't the catechism not also interpret this in that way? For it says that the praying about the coming of the kingdom is praying for the preservation and increase of his church. The Emmanuel church has grown as well in the last few years. It continues to grow in numbers. But is that what it is all about? No, that is only part of it. All over the world there are many people who claim to be Christians. But are they necessarily what they claim to be? And there are many people who faithfully go to church. But does that necessarily mean that they are part of God's kingdom? God's kingdom means that you recognize and celebrate God as your king. When he is your king, that he means that he That means that he rules over you and in you. He rules your heart. That means that you are no longer the one who determines what is good, but that God is the one who chooses that for you. You let God have dominion over you, all of you, your heart, your wallet, everything. That is something we have to learn. It begins in a very small way. Your little child at first only knows how to respond to the flesh. When a child is hungry or needs to be changed, he or she will cry. The child will automatically do that. It's natural. It will demand attention. It wants to be served. But as the child grows up, 
it has to learn to think not only about his or her own needs, but also about the needs of others. The child has to learn to think especially about what God wants. And so as they get older, they have to learn patience. They have to learn that they do not right away get what they want when they want it. They have to learn to share and not to covet. They have to learn that they cannot become angry when things don't go their way. In other words, they have to learn how God wants them to conduct themselves. And brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that is a lifelong process. And it is a slow process. It is something that we have to continue to learn all our lives. I know I do. I have to continue to learn to let God rule my heart. Because he is king and I am his subject. And I have to be his obedient subject. And you too. Do you know what it takes to be an obedient citizen of God's kingdom? It involves death. It involves sacrifice. You have to put to death your old nature and put on your new nature. The parable about the mustard seed seems like a very simple story. But really it is quite profound. It has a very deep meaning. Think about it. A mustard seed has to die because it has to be buried. For only if you bury the seed can it be, produce life. That old seed has to die off so that new life can, can, out, can come out of it. Yesterday I dug some potatoes out of our garden. Each plant had at least half a dozen of beautiful red potatoes. They were fresh and once you washed them, they looked beautiful. But when I dug them up with each plant, there was also one rotten, shriveled up potato. That was the old potato that was put into the ground in the spring. From that old potato came new life. But now that old potato is also no longer any good. It's dead. It stinks. It's no longer any good for consumption. Well, brothers and sisters, that is also how it is with the kingdom of God and with him who inaugurated that kingdom. For what happened to the Lord Jesus? He died. He was put into the grave. As we confess every Sunday with the Apostles' Creed, he was dead and he was buried. And that is the way of the kingdom. The kingdom of God does not come about through earthly powers and magnificence and might. God's kingdom comes in weakness. It comes through the mud and the muck. It comes in a very humble, you might even say, humiliating way. That was clear already from the way that the Lord Jesus came into the world. He was born in a manger. It was a place for animals. He was a carpenter's son. He wasn't rich, far from it. He wasn't a celebrity. And while he was on earth, he had some lowly fishermen as his followers. And he ate with the weak of society, with sinners and cripples and mentally disturbed people. There seemed to be nothing great about him. He started out very small. And yet how great he became. How did he become so great? By dying to sin and for sin. 
Because of our sin, He took on our weak humanity. He took on our stinking flesh. And that flesh had to die. It had to be put into the ground so that new life could come out of it. The Lord Jesus came, became great by dealing radically with sin. By taking sin and all the effects of sin totally out of the picture. That is the only way that anything or anyone can become great. The least becomes the great. Sin weakens you. It weakens everything. But God's presence gives power. He is without sin. And when you follow Him, then you also tap into His power. And that is why He also compares God's kingdom to a lump of yeast. God's kingdom is like yeast in a large amount of flour, says the Lord Jesus. Compared to the flour, a little bit of yeast amounts to nothing. And yet, yeast makes large amounts of flour rise to many times its size. And therefore, how powerful God's kingdom is. It's like that yeast. The Lord Jesus wants us to pray for such growth of God's kingdom. God works in us by his word and spirit, the catechism says. There is great power in God's word. It may not seem like that to you. God's word may seem like a paper tiger, but with God's word, his spirit takes hold of you and me and dwells in our hearts and empowers us. With God's spirit and his word, you can expel Satan from your heart. You can have hope, you can have peace, you can have everlasting life. Someone asked the question of the Lord Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? In other words, what's with that kingdom of yours? There's only a few of you. Perhaps that's what you think as well. Here we are in a city of over a million inhabitants, and in the scheme of things we are only a small number. Without any significance, we have little or no influence. No one takes notice of us. We're just a small number, a few thousand people amongst a million. What's that? And sometimes people do join, but then later they leave again. Isn't that disappointing? Are we ever going to make headway? Some people may ask, what are we doing wrong? How come not more people join? And how come that those who do frequently leave? Now listen to what the Lord Jesus says. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. In other words, the Lord Jesus is saying, don't ask how it is with God's kingdom as such, but take care that you are part of it. Take care, in other words, that you are obedient. Take care that you follow the rules of the kingdom. For if you are not careful, then once the door to God's kingdom closes, then you are too late. The Lord Jesus describes in this passage how horrible that is. He says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. In other words... It is a place of great pain and sorrow. Pain that will never end. Enter through the small door. 
Do you know who the small door is? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the door through whom you may enter. Follow him. And if you do that, he will also increase his kingdom. And he has been doing that throughout the ages. And he will do that, however, in his way. It cannot be otherwise. We cannot embellish or add certain things to it because we think that would attract people. Not at all. Be obedient. Go through the narrow door. And so he gives you and me a role. But he, sm- he points us to the small door. Small. You cannot enter through the door if you're all puffed up with your own importance, with your own baggage. You can't go through the door if you want to take with you the anger and the grudges that you feel towards others. You can't take your wealth with you either, your bank account, your house, your cottage. If you want to take those things along, then you will not fit through that small door. It's impossible, and you won't be part of God's kingdom. Satan wants you to think that those things are important. He wants you to think that it is important to be somebody in this world. He wants you to think that you are the center of the universe. But you know who the center is, don't you? That's God. And that is why God wants you and me to fight against the devil. He wants us to pray that the works of the devil be destroyed. He wants to enlist you in his army. When you pray every day, let your kingdom come, then you pray, please make sure, God, that the devil is not going to be triumphant, that he is not going to be triumphant in my life, and that he is not going to be triumphant in the lives of my loved ones and of my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And if that's how you pray, brothers and sisters, then God's kingdom will grow. God's kingdom will grow in your heart and it will grow in this world. It will become great. And in the end, it will become perfect. And that's what the last point is about. Catechism says that we must pray in this way until the fullness of God's kingdom comes, wherein he shall be all in all. The original Latin edition edition of the Heidelberg Catechism speaks about the perfection of God's kingdom. That's what it is all about. We are looking for perfection, for fullness. Next week we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are going to sit around the table together. The Lord's Supper foreshadows what it says in verse 29 of Luke 13, namely that people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Did you know that the Lord's Supper is a feast? Do you know why it is such a feast? Not because there is such good and delicious food and drink being offered, And not because of beautiful background music either. It is a feast because it signifies that you belong to God's kingdom. That you are, as we heard this morning, citizens of heaven. It signifies that God rules. 
It signifies that you recognize God's rule. It signifies that you know and acknowledge that He is in control of all things, that He is in control of your life. By coming to the Lord's Supper table, you acknowledge that God is King and that you want God to rule more and more and more in your life. That He has dominion over you in your thinking and in your feelings. And in everything that you say and do, everything is controlled by Him and by His love that He wants you and me to share. How wonderful it is to be citizens of God's kingdom. It gives you peace and well-being. And above all, it gives you hope and it gives you a tremendous sense of security. But God's kingdom will be much greater yet in the life hereafter. It will be perfect. There will be nothing lacking. At that time, as it says in Philippians 2 and in many other passages of scriptures, all things will be under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means that he will be all in all. Because then all things will be under his control. Not that they are not under his control now already. Of course they are. Even Satan is under his control. But right now, Satan is allowed to make his presence felt. He is allowed to roam the earth and to wreak havoc. But the time is coming when he will be banished forever. And everything that belongs to him, everything that has not been purified, will be done away with. It will be perfect. It will be perfect for those who know how to humble themselves before God. Those who realize what wretched creatures they are now. Those who realize that without God they are dead. They stink. Those who realize that they must put to death their old nature, and that without the Lord Jesus Christ they are nothing but a rotten seed in which there is no life. Those will be made perfect. And so, pray, brothers and sisters, pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come in our hearts, in this world. And live in accordance with that prayer. And if you do, that, that king, then that king of creation will become visible. He will become visible in your life. You will see him in his greatness and in his majesty. And the more you believe in Him, and the more that you pray to Him, the more visible He will come in your hearts and in this world. And then all the other kingdoms with all its glitter and glory, they will diminish and come to nothing, including the dominion of Canada and the monarchy. But God's kingdom will take on the greatness that it was meant to have. And in the end, when God is all in all, you and I, we will taste perfection. Once again, how wonderful it is to be part of God's kingdom. Amen.